Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And our goal on these talks, which is the same as our goal at our SALT conferences, uh, which we were thrilled to host our guest today at our most recent SALT conference in New York, with the next one coming up in November in Singapore. But our goal is to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts, as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. And if you're a frequent listener or watcher of Salt Talks, you know that one of those big ideas that we think is changing the world is blockchain technology, digital assets, and crypto. And we're excited to bring you the latest episode of the Salt Crypto Show uh, with the CEO of Abra, Bill Barheit. And a reminder that the Salt Crypto Show is brought to you by FTX. Uh, Bill, again, is the founder and CEO of Abra, which is a leading digital asset wealth management platform. Bill gave the first ever TED Talk on Bitcoin in 2012, which I'm upset that Bill didn't call me in 2012 when Bitcoin was trading at $5 per coin. They gave me the heads up about this uh, exciting new asset class. But anyways, uh, in 2015, he created the first, uh, the world's first synthetic dollar stablecoin, which was based on Bitcoin. Uh, he's a keynote speaker and has presented at over 100 conferences globally, including the World Economic Forum, the Milken Institute, the Mobile World Congress, TED, Consensus, the Bitcoin Conference, Token 2049, the North American Bitcoin Conference, and most importantly, the SALT Conference. Uh, he's been quoted in every major journalistic outlet, including the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, uh, Wall Street Journal Bloomberg, and CNBC, uh, among, among many others. And prior to Abra, Bill was the CEO of Boom Financial and WebCentric. Uh, he was a vice president at Goldman Sachs previous to that and, and served as a research engineer at NASA and the CIA. As one of the early team members of Netscape, Bill was also involved in building some of the core infrastructure that helped grow the consumer internet that we all use today. Uh, Bill is recognized globally as a technology pioneer and an avid investor in companies across the Web3 and broader technology ecosystem. Bill, a pleasure to have you on Salt Talks. It was a pleasure to have you at our Salt New York conference last week where you had a fireside chat with Anthony uh, that I know was extremely well received. But we like to start all these talks with a little bit of a discussion about your background. Um, you know, we talked about your time, you know, in the CIA, at NASA, at Goldman Sachs. What are the experiences that you took out of all those um, those roles that led you into Web3 or made you enthusiastic about the space, as well as uh, talk about your early work sort of on the, the Internet? Wow. OK, so starting with softballs. OK, so um, <laughs> let's see. I'll, I'll break it down in, in, in a few ways. First of all, uh, really excited to be here. Uh, great week last week, last week at SALT uh, and, and, you know, wonderful feedback on the event. So so. Uh, to your question, a few, I would basically give you two perspectives. The first is I was basically a kid in those days. So with, with no, I didn't know anything about anything. I didn't even know I didn't know anything about anything, So which I guess is even worse. So, so I would say first is just a ton of experiences about how complex the real world is, right? Whether it's finance at Goldman or watching how governments work and how slow they are. Uh, in my time in, in in DC, and then later in research at NASA, and and um, you know just just I would say a lot of insights into uh, not even insights, but just hands-on experience about the complexities of the world and 
starting to get some insights as to how much I really didn't know. <laughs> and and uh, that was a little overwhelming, but it was kind of fun at the same time. And and I would say second, I have, I have a very strong passion for technology, uh, mathematics, computer science. And I was discovering different applications of, of those technologies as I was going through all these real world learnings, right? I was working on encryption and secure messaging, uh, then I did a lot of work in computer graphics and, and, and visualization. Uh, at, at Goldman, we had to develop our own stuff. So we would do research and interest rate movements in fixed income and was responsible for developing all kinds of code and trading systems and portfolio management systems and plugging in uh, interest rate movements into how it would affect fixed income portfolios. And, you know, so I got I, I got to basically merge all of these things that I was interested in learning about as they related to my personal passions for math, computer science, how the world works with a lot of real world experience. And it's really helped me from so many perspectives today, whether it's understanding a little bit about macro, probably just enough to be really dangerous, um, understanding, you know, computer science and how it works again, just enough to be, to be dangerous, uh, running PLs since I was probably 25 or 26, again, just enough to be dangerous. So so I, I have this kind of unique perspective on things that's helped me tremendously in in building a, a unique company like Abra. I think absolutely. Um, and you gave that TED talk that I alluded to back in 2012. So in those days, you know, certainly uh, maybe I one of my crazy friends had mentioned Bitcoin, but it certainly wasn't in the mainstream and wasn't on our radar as an investment institution at Skybridge. What uh, was sort of your aha moment where you discovered Bitcoin and decided this was going to be something huge? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. So, so I was on one of the mailing lists where uh, Satoshi, he, she, they, whoever uh, published the original white paper. It was an encryption mailing list, as I recall, and and, and news group. And I was on a few of them, and I scanned them regularly. I didn't, I wasn't knee deep in them. I was running a business at the time, like I was earlier, like a decade earlier. I was all over them all the time. But I did see this this link, and and I, I you know I'm, I'm very interested in payments. I've worked in payments, worked on you know first credit card processing systems back in my Netscape days for the entire internet, and built uh, ISO eighty five eighty three, which is kind of the credit card processing standard at the time. Gateways to be able to you know effectively do the equivalent of an internet swipe. So so this was always interesting to me, and the holy grail for us uh, cypherpunks was could you have true money for the internet? The biggest problem in developing true money for the internet is you can explain it in two ways. One is eliminating centralized trust, meaning if you have to trust someone, it's not money for the internet, it's private money uh, that belongs to a company, uh, which another way of saying that is, can you solve the double spend problem? And the double spend problem basically means if you're storing money on a hard disk, right, or some storage device, what prevents you from making an, an infinite number of copies and spending all of those copies of the money? It's kind of the same problem, okay? And, and it looked from this early read of the, even the abstract that this guy, or he, she, or they, whatever, thought they had actually solved this double spend problem. And we all kind of thought this is not possible, right? And, and so I kind of looked at it. I'm like, okay, this crazy person thinks they've solved this problem. It, it, the way they're explaining it is a little convoluted. Again, no one had any experience in explaining Bitcoin. So, so I just kind of put it aside. And then I, uh, somebody mentioned it to me like two or three months later. Have you looked at this Bitcoin white paper thing. This crazy guy thinks he solved the double spend problem. I said, yeah, I saw the abstract and I, re I, re I scanned the paper and I, I just it just seems very complex to me. 
anyway, the guy said, go, go look at it again. And I'd love to get your take. And so when I read it again in detail, I said, I get it. This person wants to use every computer in the world to solve the double spend problem. That's crazy. <laughs> I mean, th that would make Bitcoin literally the most inefficient transaction processing system ever devised by man. But then I thought about it and I said, well, wait a minute. I guess it depends what problem you're trying to solve. If all you care about is internet money and solving the double spend problem, the complexity becomes secondary, right? And that was a breakthrough that none of us, part of why I think Satoshi is not an academic, none of us had ever looked at it from that perspective, as I recall. And then I thought about it again, I'm like, wow. Because I was in the middle of working on um, money transfer solutions for a foundation I had started in Haiti at right at the time I was reading this, exactly in that moment, literally working on how do I move money from the US to the worst, hardest places to reach in the world. Because after the earthquake in Haiti 15 years ago, they were helicoptering cash in because all the Western Union outlets were demolished. And, and here I am reading this paper about how to remove centralized intermediaries for the movement of money. It was incredible. And so once I really absorbed it, I'm like, okay, I'm all in. This is, if this works, it's gonna change everything, right, everything. And, and so I just really started digging in and lo and behold, I started bragging about it to other people. You gotta check out this Bitcoin thing. And I managed to get the, the, the software working on a laptop at the time, which was no small feat because it was very hard to get to compile it anyway. I managed to get all this working and was and, and managed to mine some myself, even on a laptop, because you could do that in 2000, I guess, in or late, late 2010 or whenever, whatever year it was. And then, yeah, it all led to me giving this talk after I was talking about it uh, to anybody who would listen, I guess, at the time. Yeah. So all the way back in 2012, as you envisioned sort of the evolution of Bitcoin, did you envision that 10 years later, we'd be where we are today in terms of the level of adoption, the price? All those types of things, or are we ahead of schedule or behind schedule? From well, we I didn't focus on price. I didn't focus on price in the early days because remember what I said I was doing. I was focused on moving money around, and that was really exciting to me. So, I to me, moving money around when at the end of the at the end of the rope, everybody wants dollars, made Bitcoin a very ephemeral thing for me. Meaning, yeah, you can use Bitcoin as the rails to move money from here to here, but. Um, at the edges, at the edges, people will want dollars. So I said, Bitcoin is perfect for solving that problem. Um, and so I never really thought about it. At least that, I shouldn't say never. In the early days, I didn't think about it in terms of how valuable is Bitcoin going to be. I mean, now when I think about how much Bitcoin I gave away, um, I should just jump out the window, probably. But, <laughs> but um, it's fine. Uh, I, I'm thank you all for your concern, but I'm I'm, I'm doing just fine. Again, and, I, I didn't get any of those gifts, so I'm yeah. I'm sorry, uh, move on I'm sure them. I'm sure like me, you would have been in a giving mood and given it all away anyway. So so anyway, like I said, for me, it was about money movement. And so when I gave the talk, I was thinking about it in like, how do I explain this? Because it's so complicated. There's so many moving parts. No one had ever explained it publicly before. So I I, I really started to dig in and think about it in terms of what is the future of money. And I posited that, okay, what happens if the dollar loses its reserve status? This was before, you know, Dalio's book. Um, you know, we weren't talking about late stage debt cycles at the time. So the idea that some cryptocurrency, which in the aggregate was probably worth $40 million at the time, could become a global reserve currency was obviously insane. Uh, and, and, and so, or just dumb, both, whatever. But I, I really felt that was the best way to explain it. 
And because it eliminated all the frailty in what was driving down the value of the dollar uh, since the early 70s. And so anyway, that was the framework I came up with. Um, obviously, things have changed that, um, you know, that model of, of can the world use a, a stateless reserve digital currency is obviously front and center in what makes Bitcoin so interesting for so many people now and is the narrative that actually drives the price up. So that was interesting. feel a little vindicated there. I mean, I was early 40s when I gave the talk. I'm early 50s now. So so clearly some, some time has passed in, in, in between. Um, and uh, we'll see what happens. But now we've got a much bigger, bigger, bigger crypto ecosystem, right? Ethereum becoming the world's computer, if you will, and Bitcoin still playing that role as as hard money digital gold. Yeah, as you alluded to, there's a lot of tribalism in crypto. You know, you have Bitcoin maxis, you have Ethereum maxis, you have something like Solana, which has built up a really rabid community of followers, and you have certain people who believe we'll have a sort of multi-chain world where you have all these coins serving different purposes. Are you of the belief that there's going to be a lot of different blockchains that flourish because of different use cases or that, you know, you'll have potentially Bitcoin as your hard money, you'll have Ethereum or Solana or another chain as sort of your, um, you know, magic Internet money? Uh, how do you see all that playing out? Yeah, look, I'm, I'm a little dismayed um, at the tribalism. It's counterproductive. The use cases, we, we, we group it as crypto. I say you, you'll hear me say crypto as well. But the reality is the use cases are diverging dramatically, which is great, right? So so I, I said Bitcoin to me, uh, I, I look at it as an insurance policy against this kind of government fra human frailty when it comes to capitalism and, and, and monetary systems and, and digital gold in the simplest terms. And I, and I look at Ethereum and some of its layer one competitors as the future of decentralized applications. Right. And the Internet has been on a methodical march, or, or I should say society has been on a methodical march towards decentralized systems since the early 70s. And, and you know, I think I think dApps and, and, and blockchain based smart contracts are the next evolution in that very divergent from the use case for Bitcoin. And so, OK, now, if you're in the Bitcoin camp and you don't think decentralized apps will work, that's fine. But it's just an opinion. It's all software. Use it or don't use it. Right. So, so the tribalism makes no sense to me, especially when you look at all of this in the context of these emerging use cases. And honestly, Ethereum is leading right now in terms of use case adoption, whether it's for stable coins or NFTs or DeFi, which is truly astounding what, what's been happening in DeFi more than any, anything else in the, in the decentralized application ecosystem. Anyway, we're just getting started. You know, one of the things we talk about at Abra is it's impossible to know what the next set of applications is going to be that drives Web3 crypto adoption. Nobody predicted NFT collectibles would explode the way they have four years ago. No one predicted to me that, you know, we, we created the first stablecoin at Abra specifically to solve a remittance problem, but no one predicted to me that there would be, you know, a quarter of a trillion dollars in, in stablecoins minted uh, by within 10 years. I mean, it, it just, so we don't know what's next. And, and we're always looking to, you know, figure, that, figure out how to bring that to people, regardless of what it turns out to be. And that's no small feat. But, but again, I'm, I'm excited by this divergence of applications, the, the technology competition inherent in a lot of these layer one protocols. And for us, it's kind of building a future crypto bank. It's, it's 
it's awesome. You talked about all the divergent use cases, and I alluded in the intro to how you're an investor. Obviously, you're building Abra, but you're also investing across Web3 and the broader technology ecosystem. Your best guess on what is the next big on-ramp uh, you know, for mainstream adoption of crypto and blockchain? Is it gaming? You talked about the explosion of NFT yeah. collectibles. What is the next, next on-ramp in your eyes? Yeah, I think the, the two things that I, I think um, I can clearly see in my mind's eye in terms of how this is, could play out in a, in, a, in, a, in a global way that touches you know billions of people, literally billions, not figuratively, are DeFi and gaming. And, and, and I'm not saying there's not other things. I'm, I'm actually quite positive there are. I just don't know what they are. And, and we're building out Abra in a way that kind of makes us agnostic of what those future applications are. And I can come back to what I mean by that. But, but to directly answer your question, DeFi to me right now is like accessing the internet in 1992. You had to be a programmer to do it, right? Um, you, you had to know what TCPIP was to stream a video on a, a closed loop ethernet uh, based network um, whereas today you just click play on Netflix. So that's the difference, right? And and DeFi will become, as it becomes Netflix, it will become backend rails for banks to do lending, uh, interest, gener you know, yield generation, um, you know, uh, all kinds of derivatives, money markets. Uh, and I can go on and on and on, okay? Tokenization of other assets. And it will all be transparent to users, consumers, institutions, whoever, governments who use these DeFi rails. Okay. Games, to me, is interesting because it's you can go faster, less regulation. You will have banks storing gaming tokens and assets um, because they're based upon Ethereum and you get into money transmission rules and banking rules. But putting that aside, you can develop games very quickly. You can iterate very quickly. Tokenized games represents a way to do ownership and monetization that helps democratize the gaming industry. So smaller developers can easily, more, more easily compete with, with large developers and make gaming assets interoperable. And you own your stuff, you take it with you. <clears throat> We're seeing a lot of gaming platforms uh, right now in our venture arm that I'm really excited about. Um, and it's very early. I mean, oh my God, it's so early in this area. So, so it's a prediction, but uh, you know, it's I wouldn't say it's it's reality yet, right? But but right. I can see very clearly how we could get there. Yeah, you know, to be honest, yourself, some of our friends at FTX, others that we think are the smartest people in the space, investing heavily in the Web three gaming world, because as you mentioned, it's it's sort of a shared value ecosystem for the, the players of the game, which is a, a new concept that I think will be increasingly attractive to people uh, in the gaming community. You talked about DeFi as being one of the next exciting opportunities in crypto in an area uh, that feels a little bit like the early internet. I think one of the big hurdles to broader DeFi adoption, especially in the United States, is regulation. What is your general regulatory outlook um, as it relates to DeFi, as it relates to crypto assets? You know, There's a big debate in government right now about what are securities and things of that nature. Where do you think we'll ultimately arrive uh, from a U.S. government perspective on regulation? Yeah, it's a, it's a complicated question uh, with a lot of moving parts. And, and so, you know, I, I think that there's kind of the base layer of, of regulation, which is, you know, we have commodities rules, we have banking rules, we have securities rules, and, and we try to map those very, very old tried and true 
rules into this new digital asset ecosystem. And that creates a lot of problems, right? So uh, I remember one lawyer explaining to me like, okay, you've got rules that predate television for securities, banking, commodities rules that are being applied to this new uh, digital asset space, right? It's it's literally the, the big square peg in the small round hole sometimes. And, and, and so I get the difficulty in which, um, you know, uh, you know, around which regulators have to, well, in their mind, have to figure out how to make this work. Now, when, when I use air quotes, when I say have to, I think part of uh, what regulators should recognize and what politicians who actually make the rules, probably politicians even more importantly in the long term, regulators in the short term, because they're given latitude to interpret existing laws um, and, and quite often unchecked, which is concerning. But, but I think first principle should be do no harm. Okay. And I do see harm being done. Um, and I think we need to err in, in a society of checks and balances. And that's what always basically gives me hope for, for America, wherever I go. And I've been to 70 countries is we have the best checks and balances of any, any systems I've, I've, I've seen. Right. Um, and which basically means that, you know, no power should go unchecked. With, with certain regulatory bodies, those powers often go unchecked. Yeah, they'll have to explain themselves in front of Congress, but then they leave and they go about their business. And, and so we, ha- we need to recognize regulators are not lawmakers. They're law interpreters. Well, so are citizens. We're all law interpreters, right? And, and so we, re- we need to recognize that there are checks and balances in those systems that we are allowed to use together, both lawmakers and users of this new technology. And it almost obliges us to have a dialogue around how this should work. Now, that having been said, we're making tremendous progress in terms of how to apply existing laws or how to modify and create potentially new laws. Wyoming is a great example uh, with their new digital asset banking laws, which I'm really bullish on. And other states are looking at it now and other even international governments are, are actually taking their model um, to heart. So, and, and, and some of the things that uh, are coming out of the CFTC in terms of how they're looking at this are very promising. Uh, they seem to have gone very deep. Um, and, and so I think the, the big variable remains the SEC and you know guidance around what's a security, what's not, how enforcement works. Are we basically uh, doing, um, creating rules via enforcement? or creating rules via guidance. And I think there's been a fear out of creating rules via guidance because you get it wrong and you can fall back on enforcement. And, and so that's disconcerting, right? And, and right. so I think the, the, X, the Ripple XRP case is, is a good case in point. They waited years before bringing that case, years. And they let the what they claim were these new security offering sales go on and on and on and on and on. And, and that means any judge should look at that and go, well, okay, if you knew this was a security offering from the beginning, I get you can pick and choose your battles, but look at the amount of money they were raising for years, right? right. So, so anyway, we're making tremendous progress. We're able to operate within this existing ecosystem with lawyers who know what they're doing. You got a lawyer up. That's just the way it goes. We have. And, you know, you make a case. And, and so I think that the space is going to evolve very quickly. Major players are now in a position to provide, um, you know, custody services where they were afraid to before. Uh, and, and that's evolving at an at a, at a, at a incredible rate. So I, I think all of this is just going to evolve over time. Securities, commodities, banking, um, you know, and, and um, 
yeah, we'll see how we'll see how it plays out. But I'm 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 bullish. Fantastic. Well, you made a really big announcement uh, at Salt in your fireside chat with Anthony around Abra Bank, which is a U.S. state chartered institution that you're in the process of launching. That would be the crypto industry's first regulated bank. So for the uninitiated, they look around the ecosystem, and there are institutions today that you know act as bankers for a lot of players in the digital asset ecosystem. You look at somebody like Anchorage and Silvergate, and, and the list goes on. How is Abra Bank going to be unique, you know, pending approval relative to what's out there in the ecosystem? Yeah, great question. So, so we're not aware of any depository institution. A trust, first of all, let's, let's break it down what that means. A bank is a depository institution. A, a, a trust is traditionally not a depository institution. So if you talk about Anchorage and, and, and BitGo, uh, Paxos, uh, I believe Gemini, they're trusts. Okay, they're, they're not banks, they're not money transmitters. Um, and so there's supposed to be limitations on what a trust can do. And I think our industry is pushing the boundary of those limitations. And I suspect there's going to eventually be pushback on that from, from the other side of the aisle. Uh, we'll see, but it, it is what it is. So um, one of the things, there's a few things that a trust can't do that a bank can do, right? Uh, pay interest is one. Um, you know, basically uh, lend against uh, deposits is another. So, so and, and, and also retail, right? So the idea that you're servicing individual consumer accounts who aren't accredited investors is traditionally not something that you would do. You wouldn't create a um, dep demand deposit account uh, through a trust for a consumer, okay? Uh, especially not holding stable coins, right? And, and you mentioned one bank uh, in the US that you know does service crypto companies, but you're not opening a demand account that holds stable coins as a consumer. Right. Okay? So we're building that bank that services consumers, businesses, merchants, eventually everyone in the ecosystem, all based upon these crypto rails. Dollars as stable coins, you know, lending against collateral, um, interest on stable coin deposits eventually. So, so everything you would expect if you took a traditional bank and turned it into a crypto bank. And I haven't seen anyone else even try to do that. It's, it's, it's something we've been working on for a while. And we've been partnering with many of the companies that I just mentioned, and they've been great to work with. But as we've scaled our business tremendously, we do feel that we need to have regulatory clarity for our clients and give them the transparency, the oversight, the safety and soundness, security, and even the personal agency over their assets that is should go part and parcel with being in crypto. Right. What type of customer uh, do you think this new Abra Bank is tailor-made for? And how do you think it will... Uh, be a boon potentially to the NFT uh, community? That's an awesome question. So my answer to that is yes. <laughs> and what I mean by that is we want everyone. And and I mean, it's a global bank. That's where It's not just a US uh, institution that we're forming, but we, we're also forming an international equivalent. Uh, the, the first international equivalent will launch in October. And then we're planning to launch in, in, more, in more jurisdictions as we go uh, to do other services. But But the point is, is that the way I look at this is it, it, going back to my analogy about what happened in 1993 to access the internet. You had to be a programmer and use TCP/IP, and you know I probably lost half the audience already, right? So, so today the equivalent is I have exchanges, which I would say is you know what the pro trader could use, like your sponsors, right? Um, and and I'm kind of crypto initiated, but but more as a trader, I could be a non-techie and kind of get away with it. And then you have the other end of the spectrum, which I call the the being the PhD in MetaMask, 
right? If, so if you've ever bought a, a an NFT on you know OpenSea, you have to install this MetaMask thing, whatever that is, right? And you have to do key management, whatever that is. And hopefully you understand what they're telling you. Otherwise, you want to run a really good risk of losing your keys. And then you start seeing all these weird messages about digitally signing this and digitally signing that. And you have no idea what they're talking about, right? So the way we look at this, that's the spectrum of how things work today as an end user. What we're saying is, okay, there's 100 million people who've probably downloaded MetaMask. And there's another 100 million who probably, you know, opened an exchange account somewhere. And there's huge overlap between the two. And what we're saying is, okay, what's going to get 3 billion people to be able to earn yield via DeFi, do lending, play games, um, without having to understand anything I just said? So we're developing a bank that will allow you to hold your digital assets, use those digital assets on any web, web page that is turned into a dApp, whether it's an NFT or a stable coin, um, you know, or get a loan, whatever is required without having to understand any of the complexity. So the, so you literally authenticate yourself into the web page via your bank account, just like you would be a MetaMask, but all of the complexity of that MetaMask is now in Abra's bank. And you don't even know, you know, right, anything about private keys or key management or digital signing, it just works. That's our vision on how to bring this to a billion people, okay? And the closest analogy, I, I remember years ago before the iPhone, when Steve Jobs laid out in a presentation, the digital media strategy for Apple, he basically told you a few years before the iPhone was launched, their roadmap for 15 years. You can go back and watch it. It's on the internet. It's incredible. Now, of course, at the time, Apple was in the doldrums and nobody, you know, whatever. I mean, it's just, you know, big, big vision, all good. But he actually laid it out. Our equivalent is to say, Digital assets are going to be integrated into everything on the internet, tokenization of everything, whether it's using stable coins as money, gaming tokens, uh, membership tokens as NFTs, which I think is going to become a big deal, right? That bank account is probably going to carry 20, 30, 40 NFTs for everyone within three or four years that are used as membership, entry keys, um, you know, personal avatars, gaming tokens, whatever it takes, Right. And, right. and we simply want to be the bank account for all of that. Yeah, the, the way I explain it to people is that as soon as, as people forget they're even using blockchain rails, that's when we will have accomplished our mission. You know, that today exactly it's still right. too cumbersome. You know, I, I say to somebody, oh, you should buy this NFT. And they say, okay, here's my credit card. And, and I yep. say, well, there are ways that you could you could do it with your credit card today. And, and there's several people that are working on those types of solutions, but yep. it's still uh, not something that the average uninitiated user uh, feels comfortable doing. So if, if you have a child today who's a teenager, they don't know what an MP3 is. They right. don't know. That's incredible. They know what streaming music streaming is. Or a DVD. You know? Right, exactly. And, and so, but my point is it's become more accessible as a result of the evolution and, and ease of use inherent in streaming versus having to download individual music files and organize them. And, and this technology is going to evolve in that direction as well. It, there's more complexity because digital assets are, are kind of a bucket of stuff. And my opinion is you're going to need a bank account to ma manage that stuff, or you're just going to have it all over the place. And maybe both will happen to some degree. Um, but the ease of use is coming via these type of bank accounts that Abra is, is building.
So you, as we talked about, have a range of different experience, including at Goldman. And, and you said you study macro just enough to be dangerous. So we're going to we're going to put you in danger here and talk about sort of the macro environment that we're in. You know, we, we had a hot inflation reading uh, this week that uh, has people thinking that the Fed is going to continue to hike rates aggressively. There's a lot of calls for a sustained global recession. How do you think about building your business? You know, you're focused on on what you're doing, but how do you think about the macro environment in the context of what you're building? Yeah, look, I think that um, uh, it's hard to understand all of the uh, moving parts to this ecosystem. You've got technology, you've got regulation, uh, you've got on-ramps and off-ramps. We've got oodles of partners that we have to deal with. And uh, I think my role as, as somebody who's trying to basically create a, a straight pointing arrow, you know, so, so that employees, customers, even regulators can actually see the bullseye that we're pointing towards long-term, that's my job, okay? Kind of aligning all the wood behind behind that arrow, uh, and that's why I, I have these conversations and 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 talk to everyone who who will listen, uh, and and you know I'm committed to to doing that. But it, it's it's non trivial, and and I love that. Um, but my job is to hopefully simplify, uh, so that getting the wood behind the arrow uh, is is a viable task uh, over time, and hopefully we're getting better at is better at it as we go. Um, but we have an awesome executive team at Abra, and each of them has built uh, an awesome team under them, and that's why we're executing. And so managing this complexity is part of our competitive advantage, I think. Um, I think there'll be others that are taking this kind of bank-centric approach over time. But um, we've, I think, have figured out how to manage the complexity so that we can build kind of a a profitable business as we go and not have to lay chess pieces for five years and then start playing the game. Because uh, that can cost you a billion dollars, right? So, so anyway, so I think I don't know if I'm answering your question, but I think we've, we we kind of figured out how to how to manage this complexity with 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 a lot of leadership. Right. Do you think we'll ever see a decoupling, or in the near future, we'll see a decoupling of crypto assets from just global risk assets? You know, I think people talk about how crypto has experienced this big drawdown, but in the context of what we've seen in tech, both public and private. Actually, some crypto assets have held up better than than tech companies, high growth tech companies. Uh, but I think every Bitcoiner dreams of the day when Bitcoin is viewed as more of an inflation hedge and and decouples uh, from some of the global dysfunction that we see among governments and things like that. Do you think that's in our near term future, or do you think we're sort of attached to risk assets? It depends how you look at it. Um, one way to look at it is the opposite, which is to say, well, if if Web three is about the tokenization of everything. We're actually moving in the opposite direction, meaning what, what's a digital asset and, and what's not is actually going to become blurred over time, which, which, which from one perspective makes your, your question a non sequitur. But then there becomes two types of digital assets, right? Assets that live in the pure digital realm, you know, Bitcoin, Ethereum, and then you can have um, security, secure, uh, tokenized versions of securities, existing securities, for example, which actually live in the physical realm, right? Because they're, they're giving you ownership in companies. And, and so uh, let's start off with just the digital realm versus the physical realm, which I think was what you meant. And, and I'll say that, you know, from a macro perspective, right, when things are bad, right, and, and you get these rare bouts when everything sells off, which is where we're in right now, I don't think it's going to matter. 
whether it's digital or physical, what's going to matter is what's happening with the money supply as long as we continue to value everything in dollars, which is not going to change anytime soon. Okay. Right. And so money supply goes up and down, affects what, what the market calls risk on, risk on assets. Doesn't matter at that point. If you're a risk on asset and, and you're in risk off mode relative to dollars, your price is probably going down unless the, you know, the relative strength uh, indicator for, for that particular asset is so high. Uh, that it gives you, you know, a hedge against, uh, you know, sell-offs, um, and most most assets don't do that. Okay, so that's number one. I would say, you know, I, I think that you are going to see a more consistent divergence, right? I mean, if you look at the correlation between crypto and equities over the last six years, it wasn't as high as people think. It was at the extremes that it became high, meaning meaning market melt ups and meltdowns. And and most recently we've been in a meltdown, and so that made the correlation look much uh, much higher than it had the, the previous two or three years. And then the question becomes: five, six, ten years out, when we have future meltdowns and meltups, is the correlation going to come back to being closer to to one? I don't know. I suspect it'll always come a little bit more correlated in meltdown and meltups, but I think that correlation. Um, will become less and less over time, just given the different nature of, of these assets and markets and the network effects inherent in them. Um, but but it's just, it's not something that I spend a lot of time focusing on because to me, these are tools for building the future of the internet, right? And as such, they are inherent and, and, and they're also limited in quantities. And when you combine those two things, you get network effects of extreme adoption, and you know deflationary nature of the assets, you get incredible value potential, and and that's what matters to me is that I can build with these things, and the more I build, potentially the more valuable they become, and that matters more to me than correlation, I suppose. Right. Last question. You know, Anthony likes to end a lot of these conversations with a prediction from our guest on you know the price of Bitcoin in five, ten years. But I want to frame the question a little bit differently, which is. When you're thinking in your head, you know, your mental model for pricing digital assets and, and their adoption, what are the inputs that you're thinking about in the process that you go through mentally uh, to make those projections that I think you remain bullish on the industry? So what are those inputs that make you so bullish? Sure. I mean, it really comes down to two things. One is the network effects, and the network effects are driven by mostly consumer adoption okay, as it relates to, to crypto and these type of assets, meaning institutions buying and lock, locking up a whole bunch of Bitcoin and Ether doesn't create network effects. Okay? We'll make the money at scale, but but inherently it doesn't create network effects. And, and, and that's played out if you look at the price of, of, of crypto assets over the last six, seven years in, in particular. Because in the early days, it was so new, it, it, those rules probably didn't matter as much. But that's number one, okay? And and number two is is money supply, right? Meaning meaning are we in a position as a society to move money into these assets right or are we just struggling to survive right and right now a lot of people are struggling to survive and 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 as the money supply has been decreasing and access to credit is is shrinking dramatically but that wasn't the case the previous few years right so the network effects could allow the value in the system to grow faster than traditional risk on assets because the money was there to do it okay I think we'll get back to that mode where money supply becomes a non-issue and the network effects will continue unabated, which is why I'm so bullish on crypto 
uh, long term. And you know, as a result, when I when I overlay those two and I look at the, the models with crypto adoption happening faster than the internet and smartphones uh, ever did, and I look at where the money supply is likely headed by 2030, to me, I can easily see a case where where Bitcoin's at a million dollars by 2030. And it's, you know, which is like, you know, people said uh, in, in 2015 that, that Bitcoin was headed for $50,000. $50, it sounded crazy. Right. Um, and this probably sounds equally crazy to a lot of people, but it's really not when you look at it with the model I just described. Well, Bill, it's been a pleasure to have you on Salt Talks. And again, it was a pleasure to have you at Salt uh, last week. Really excited about what you guys are building at Abra. You know, whenever... Uh, you know, I have moments of doubt about the industry in my head. I think about the smart people like you who are building in this space, and, and it makes me realize how unstoppable uh, this shift is. And so a pleasure to talk to you again. I oh, mean, I'm, I'm just honored and humbled to be able to do this for a living and, and, and get paid to do it. Uh, I can't imagine doing anything else. And and so, uh, so yeah, loved, loved talking to you guys and enjoyed being at the, the conference last week and uh, look forward to seeing everyone at the at the next event. All right. Fantastic. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in to today's Salt Talk with Bill Barheit from Abra. Just a, re a reminder, if you miss any part of this talk or any of our previous episodes, you can access them all free and on demand on our website at salt.org backslash talks, on our YouTube channel, which is called Salt Tube, or anywhere that you listen to podcasts in audio form. Uh, please spread the word about these Salt Talks. Again, we love educating people. We love uh, helping accelerate those network effects that Bill was talking about. We're also on social media. Uh, Twitter is where we're most active at SALT Conference. We're also on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook as well. On behalf of the entire SALT team, this is John Darcy signing off for today. We hope to see you back here again soon.